tell how big the passage is by the font I used this week. So I'm going to try my computer glasses. I have three glasses at my age, regular, computer, and readers, and I don't have any readers, so I hope this works. Our passage today is Daniel 11, 21 through 22. Then we're going to jump down to 11:29 and go through 12, 13. So Daniel 11, 21, 22, 11 through 29 through 12, 13. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortress instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hands against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasure of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many 
to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tent, the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Chapter 12. At the time shall rise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him, whoever lives, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offerings is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Yep, that's another weird one. But for as strange and detailed as this vision is, the message is actually really plain and simple. Go your way until the end. Go your way until the end is the final command that we find in this book. Go your way until the end. Whatever may come, whatever you face, whatever persecution or opposition or suffering you face, Daniel, go your way to the end. Persevere. Remain faithful until the end. That's the message that Daniel needed. That's the message that God's people in Daniel's day needed. And that is the message that we, God's people in this day, need to hear. Go your way. Persevere. Be faithful until the end. Chapters 10 through 12 contain the final vision that Daniel received and recorded for us. 
We introduced this vision last week, and we saw in chapter 10 where the curtain of history was pulled aside, and we witnessed that there's a great spiritual battle that's being fought in unseen realms. That the seen world in which Daniel lives is being affected by an unseen battle that's raging. And lest Daniel and the returning exiles lose heart, God gives them a vision of this unseen battle, and more than that, He reveals to them what is yet to come. Now, I did not have us read large chunks of chapter 11. You're welcome. Because, frankly, I don't believe reading it out loud would have helped us. Really, the portion that we did read this morning was confusing enough. Now, in the full vision of chapter 11, there are so many players, and there's so much action, and there are so few labels given to us that even the most ardent of scholars can leave this passage shaking their heads going, what's going on here? So rather than read through and dissect each and every detail of chapter 11, which would be laborious and I don't think it would be helpful, we're going to consider three main points as we fly over chapter 11 here. We're considering the sweep, the sovereignty, and the subversive. The sweep, the sovereignty, and the subversive. First, the sweep. We're going to look at the sweep of history, the sweep of what happens here. Friends, in one sense, we don't have to go over all the details of chapter 11 because we've actually already seen many of these details laid out for us in the previous visions of Daniel. Daniel received this vision during the time of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and verses 1 through 4 detail for us things that we've already seen in the vision in chapter 2, and again in the vision in chapter 7, and again in the vision in chapter 8. Verses 1 through 4, which Kevin didn't read for us, but it details that the kingdom of Persia is going to be followed by a kingdom of Greece. And the king of Greece, a man who we know is Alexander the Great, after he conquers all of the known world, is going to die suddenly. And because he has no heir, his kingdom is going to be divided into four parts and given over to the rule of others. We, we saw all this before in the previous vision. But then in verses 5 through 20 of chapter 11, we get a little bit more detail about a couple of the four kingdoms into which Alexander's kingdom was divided. Two of the kingdoms take center stage in verses 5 through 20. The kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. Now, friends, if we're going to talk about a kingdom of the north and a kingdom of the south, we need to ask the question, well, what's the center of the compass? North and south of what? The center of the compass is Jerusalem, the land of Palestine, the place of God's people. Because this vision is given to Daniel to give to the people of God as they return to their land of Palestine and as they rebuild the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. So this vision makes clear that although God's people are going to be restored finally from the Babylonian captivity, finally they're going to return to their land, they're going to find they return to their land and they're still subject to the Persians. But then the Persians will be replaced by the Greeks under Alexander. And then Alexander is going to fall and they're going to find themselves returned to their land, but in the middle of a conflict of kingdoms, the kingdom of the north, which is the Seleucid kingdom in Syria, and the kingdom of the south, the Ptolemy kingdom, which includes Egypt and the land surrounding. 
Now, God's telling them this so they don't get discouraged. I mean, they finally have returned after 70 years in Babylon to their land. And what happens? They're stuck in the middle of ongoing conflicts of power. So this vision, which gives us the sweep of literally hundreds of years of history, would have given his God's people hope. Why? Because it revealed to them that God is still sovereign over all that happens. You know, this is another vision of Daniel, like some of the previous ones, that we know was fulfilled so accurately according to what we know of history that skeptics argue this simply must have been written after the fact. This must have been written after the fact and then attributed as prophecy to the great prophet Daniel because it is so accurately fulfilled in history. But friends, we know this wasn't written after the fact. This was written long before it happened because it's another revelation of God's sovereignty. Friends, God sovereignly declares from the beginning what's going to happen in the end. And although the nations are raging and kingdoms rising and falling, God's people can rest secure because God is sovereign over it all. He is the Ancient of Days. And so this vision with all the rising and falling in kingdoms and everything that's happening, would have brought hope to the people of God caught in the middle of this conflict. And so, friends, unless you're a history buff and a Bible scholar, that's really what you and I need to understand about the first part of the vision. It's about the sweep of history and the sovereignty of God. But the main disclosure of the vision starts in verse 21, which is where I had Kevin start reading for us. Now, you might remember that in the vision of Daniel chapter 7, there were four beasts that rose out of the ocean. And the first three beasts were really just kind of set in the stage for the fourth beast and all of the ten horns and the little horn that raised up. He was the main event. And in the same way, in the vision of the ram and the goat in chapter 8, there was a ram with two big horns, there was a goat with one prominent horn, and then he had four horns. But all of that was just setting us up for a long discussion of the little horn that was going to rise up and become great. So it was all setting the stage. And frankly, everything in the first part of the vision that Kevin didn't read for us was simply setting the stage for the main event that starts in verse 21. Verse 21 announces a new king is going to arise from this kingdom of the north, the Seleucid kingdom. And this king from the north is going to bring a time of persecution against God's people. Verse 21 describes the king who will rise as a contemptible person. A contemptible person. And why is he contemptible? Because he is subversive. He is subversive. To subvert means to undermine the power and authority of an established system or institution. And this king subverts legitimate human power, but more than that, we're going to find this king rises up to try to subvert and undermine divine power. So, friends, we've actually met this figure in verse 21 before. We met him in Daniel chapter 8. The little horn of Daniel chapter 8, the ruler that would rise, is the contemptible person of Daniel chapter 11. It's referring to the Seleucid king called Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who came to power in about 175 B.C. You might remember from our discussion of Daniel's vision in chapter 8, Antiochus was aggressive. 
He was hungry for power, and he was particularly aggressive towards the Jewish people living in Palestine. And so what Kevin read for us in verses 21 through 28, they detail Antiochus' military campaign against the king of the south. He ruled the north, and he had a campaign against the king of the south. And Antiochus was successful in his campaign. However, after winning in the south, he was heading back home to the north, and lo and behold, what's right between the kingdom of the north and the south but Palestine, God's people. And verse 28 says, He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So again, Palestine, he passed through Palestine, and when he did, he stopped in Palestine and he observed what he perceived was an insurrection. And his response was to deal ruthlessly with the Jewish people, as indicated here in verse 28. It says his heart was set against the Holy Covenant, those who followed the Holy Covenant that God gave through Moses. And it's recorded that Antiochus destroyed 80,000 men, women, and children, and he plundered the temple. And angered by such brutal and unjust treatment, if there hadn't been an insurrection before, there was a rebellion now. And the books of First and Second Maccabees tell us that the, of the Maccabean revolt, led by Judas Maccabee and his family. And as we've said before, even though the books of First and Second Maccabees are included in some Catholic versions of the Bible, they're not inspired scripture. They're good for historical insights, but we don't believe that they give us the divine voice of God. But they give us history of what was going on during this time of the Maccabees and gives us insight into the rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes. So we find about a year later in 168 B.C., Antiochus invaded Egypt again. So he, he ravaged Palestine, went home, and then a year later he returned to attack the Kingdom of the South a second time. And this didn't go so well for him. The first time it went well, second time not so much, and he suffered a humiliating defeat, and he was angry. And he chose to vent his anger on the people of Palestine as he passed back through. And that's what we find in verses 29 to 30 of Daniel chapter 11. History tells us that Antiochus vented his rage and anger on Palestine. In 167 B.C., he began killing people and plundering the city. He rewarded the Jews who forsook their Jewishness and who had supported Hellenistic or Greek policies. And in, that's what it means in verse 30, where it says, He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he was trying to turn them against the covenant, to turn them against their God, to become for them, in fact, a God. And then we come to the crux in verse 31. Verse 31 says, forces from him, from Antiochus, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Again, that should ring a little bit familiar for those of you that have been with us the whole time, because this is what we read about in Daniel chapter 8. Approximately 167 B.C., Antiochus defiled the temple in Jerusalem. On the altar of burnt offering, he sacrificed a pig, which was the most unclean, ceremonially unclean of animals in the Mosaic Covenant. 
And then he set up a statue to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And as such, Antiochus, by doing so, he took away the regular burnt offering. And in the temple, he set up the abomination that made it desolate. And church, this subverter was not just interested in subverting human authority. He was interested in subverting and replacing God himself. Because at that time, he also forbade the Jews from circumcising their male infants. He outlawed the possession of the Hebrew Scriptures. He profaned the Sabbath and the feast days. And he prohibited the people from practicing the laws of Torah in general. He went to war with God and with God's order and his rule. And as we noted in Daniel chapter 8 when we studied it, his given name was Antiochus IV. But he's known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes was a blasphemous title that he gave himself. Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning the illustrious God. He declared himself to be a god. He sought to subvert and overthrow God himself and take his place. And verses 32 through 35 that Kevin read for us, there's a literal and spiritual battle raging in those verses between Antiochus and the faithful led by the Maccabees. Verse 32 actually summarizes for us. It says, Antiochus shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Antiochus was trying to seduce people away from God, and those that wouldn't, he killed. And the faithful, like the Maccabees, stood firm and they took action. And in this literal and spiritual battle, tens of thousands of faithful would die. But note how verse 35 describes their death. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Through their persecution and even their death, the faithful are refined, purified, and made clean. The trials and the persecution prove and purify the faith of those who follow God then and those who follow God today. Refined, purified, made clean. And friends, this message, if the people of God heard it in Daniel's day, it would have brought them hope. It would have brought them hope then because caught in the middle of these warring kingdoms, this message would bring hope. And friends, it should bring hope to us who are caught in the middle of warring administrations today. You know, a week after our most recent election, we need to remember that in the sweep of history, the rise and fall of kings and governments, political parties and candidates, red waves and blue waves, is all under the sovereign control of God. And no matter who is in power or what persecution might come of it, there will always be those who remain faithful. Trials only serving to refine, to purify, and to make clean those who trust God. Because our God is the Ancient of Days. And friends, we come to verse 36 through 35, and I've got to tell you, something happens here. And I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure what it is here in verse 36 through 45 because there are two things in this final portion of the, of the vision that happen 
that we have to contend with. First, up until this point in the vision, up until verse 35, all of it is verified by history. Historically accurate. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. It matches up perfectly. But then we come to the final portion of the vision, and it contains details that don't seem to line up chronologically or factually with what we know about Antiochus. Plus, this last part of the vision, I know it's strange, but you can even hear it. It almost shifts to this cosmic language, like the battles become greater and even more transcendent. Now, that's one thing, but the problem is there's no clear grammatical marker between verse 35 and verse 36 that says, hey, we're switching subjects now. It's like he continues on talking about the exact same person, but as you read about it, you go, it can't be the exact same person. But there's no indicator that he's changed subjects. So what do we do with that? Uh, is, is the vision revisiting and reviewing and giving us some more detail that we just don't understand correctly about Antiochus' reign? Or, in fact, is the vision shifting and talking about someone else? Talking about another who is going to come like Antiochus. Another foe who's going to rise against God's people. And, friends, first of all, we've got to admit, it's just not clear. But in making our best attempts to understand this part of the vision, I believe what's happening in verses 36 through 45 is the same thing that happens when Jesus teaches about the end times. You know, if you turned in your Bible to Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21, you would read the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is discussing two things. He talks about the destruction of the temple and he talks about his final return. And the way that he teaches and talks about it, it kind of blends these two things together. But friends, we know that the destruction of the temple happened in A.D. 70, and we know that it's now A.D. 2022, and Jesus' final return has not yet happened. But when he talks about them, the, the two things are, are, are intermingled together. He talks about these, these two events as if they're somehow related. You know, what Jesus is doing in the Olivet Discourse is called prophetic foreshadowing in which events that are in the far-off future and the events in the near future are spoken of together as if they're close together. It's similar to the effect that you get if at a long distance you're looking at a mountain range and you see two peaks and from your perspective, they look like they're right next to each other. But in reality, those two peaks are actually a great distance apart. And in fact, what we have, I think, here the destruction of the temple, Jesus eventually returned. Jesus' teaching goes, well, these two peaks are part of the same mountain range. And I'm talking about them and they look close, but the truth is, there's actually a great distance between them. But they are part of the same mountain range. And I think the same thing is happening here in Daniel's vision. This persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes and the persecution of God's people by future subverters are both part of the same mountain range. And he talks about them in a way that they, they look like they're right on top of one another. But the fact is, the two peaks are actually a great distance away from each other. And the second thing that I think that's happening here in this part of the vision is that Antiochus Epiphany stands as kind of a type. A type of the, the one that would subvert God. Uh, the, the one that would be an anti or against Christ. 
So he's a, a type, and in the future there will be more fulfillment of this type. We already understand this because when we understand King David in the history of Israel, King David was the model king of Israel. And we were promised, God's people were promised, that is, another king like David would come and reign on David's throne. And friends, David's son Solomon was a partial fulfillment of that type. In fact, every son or ancestor of David was not ancestor, but of David's lineage, was a partial fulfillment. But friends, we know that the perfect and final fulfillment of that type, that king, is Jesus Christ. David was a type foreshadowing a more perfect fulfillment, a king who would reign forever on David's throne. So the type points us to future embodiments of the same type. So I think that's what we've got going on here in Daniel's prophecy. We've got multiple peaks in the same mountain range, spoken up together, and they look close together, but they're actually far apart. And I think that we also have this subverter that, that Antiochus is a type of all those who will come after him and try to subvert God, who will be anti against Christ and stand against him. But friends, the specific details of 36 to 45 overall, they remain enigmatic and they're difficult. And they're hard to understand. I don't know what's going on here. But what I want to move on to is how the vision ends. Because that is clear. And friends, it is beautiful. It's further evidence, actually, that 36 through 45 are not about Antiochus because chapter 12, we all of a sudden find ourselves at the end. Literally the end of all days. In verse 21, we're told that until the end of, I'm sorry, verse 21, chapter 12, verse 1, we are said, told that until the end of time, there will be trouble and persecution for God's people, but we are promised, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Friends, just like the Lord delivered the faithful in the day of Antiochus, the Lord shall deliver the faithful in these days of persecution, and the Lord delivers all whose names are written in His book. Church, the Lord knows those who are His, and He will keep them until the end. The Apostle Paul offered us this confidence in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So friends, although we might face persecution, although subverters, antichrists might rise and oppress God's people, the Lord knows those who are His. And those whose names are written in His book will persevere to the end. It's a word of comfort. It's a word of hope to Daniel in his day of persecution, to God's people in their day of persecution, and to God's people today in our day. No matter what persecution we face, friends, the Lord knows those who are His. And church, we see that even if the faithful die in the face of persecution, they're offered hope. The hope of resurrection. Friends, Daniel 12, verse 2, is incredible. It is the clearest affirmation of resurrection in the whole Old Testament 
And it is the only affirmation of a double resurrection in the Old Testament. The resurrection of the righteous to life and the resurrection of the unrighteous to condemnation. Chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Friends, present faithfulness in great trouble, in persecution, is worth it. Because even if they take our lives, we are promised resurrection to life eternal. And verse 3 says that the righteous will shine like stars. And when it talks about stars here, as elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's talking about angelic beings. The righteous, those faithful, even in trouble and persecution, even unto death, will shine brighter than the host of heaven. What great hope this would give to God's persecuted people. Even if you face death, here's the promise of resurrection. Here's the promise of reward. Here's the promise of shining brighter. Friends, the gospel, the good news for us today is that we know this hope of resurrection and we know it even more clearly and surely than Daniel and God's people did then. During Jesus' ministry, after a man named Lazarus died, Jesus showed up and had this exchange with Lazarus' sister named Martha. John chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Jesus said to Martha, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Friends, Martha understood from this passage in Daniel that there would be a resurrection on the last day. But Jesus declares to her the gospel, the good news, the resurrection starts now. I have come to bring a spiritual resurrection, a life that begins here and now and will never end. As we sang this morning, in your name I come alive to declare your victory. Because the resurrected King is resurrecting me. Friends, make no mistake, there will be a final resurrection, the righteous to eternal life and reward, the unrighteous to eternal shame and contempt. But the good news of Jesus Christ, that He's come to give us a life that begins now to spiritually bring us to life, to raise us up spiritually, so that though we will physically die, yet shall we live. And then one day Christ will raise us to physical life. To live eternally with Him. So friends, there's no fear. There is no fear for God's people who face persecution even unto death. Because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus asks every one of us here today the same thing that He asked Martha on that day. Do you believe this? In verse 4, Daniel's told to seal up the words, keep them safe for future generations. But also, he says, seal them up because there's a lot here that you cannot and will not fully understand until you see it happen. So seal it up. And the vision ends in verses 5 through 13, or a concluding epilogue. Daniel finds himself where he started on the banks of the river, and he's now got two angelic companions standing there with him. 
And they're still talking to this angelic messenger who brought the vision. And Daniel's trying to wrap his head around it all. And so we find a couple of questions asked here. First question in verse 6. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And the answer is in verse 7. It would be for a time, times, and half a time. Friends, we saw that mathematical equation before. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. It said the saints will be given over to the hand of the little horn. The, the king who would rise for a time, times, and half a time. And as we talked about when we say the vision, if I said one, two, you expect three. So if instead it was one, two, half, well, clearly it's been interrupted. What was building up and was expected to build even greater has come to a sudden and decisive end. And in the same way, the message of time, times, and a half a time is that one day evil itself is going to be suddenly interrupted. That even though its power seems to be increasing, all of a sudden God is going to cut it off. Friends, I don't believe that equation, times, time, and a half a time, is meant to give us a calendar. I think it's meant to give us hope. It gives us hope that evil has an expiration date. That even as it seems to be increasing in power, God's going to show up and cut it off. Evil's days are numbered. Friends, this would have been good news to Daniel and those returning to the land. And it is good news to those who face evil in each and every generation. And then Daniel finally asks in verse 8 the question that all of us are asking. Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. I'm with you, Daniel. I'm right there. I heard. I don't get it. So then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Friends, you've got to note, first, Daniel himself, the interpreter of dreams, the receiver of visions, a guy who has regular conversations with angels, didn't get it. So why do we think we will? And in response to Daniel's question, God responds in verses 9 through 10. He says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves, make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, and those who are wise shall understand. So twice, in verse 9, and then again at verse 13, Daniel's commanded, go your way. That's the command he's given. Go your way. Live your life, Daniel. Be faithful. Persevere to the end. And verse 10 describes it. He says, some will be faithful and purify themselves, some will continue in wickedness. Which will you be? Which will you be? Daniel, go your way. Persevere and be faithful to the end. And for how long must Daniel and all the faithful endure? We get another closing math equation. So for all of you math people, this is for you. Verse 11 through 12. And from the time that the regular burnt offerings taken away and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. Whoa! Okay, what's the relationship between time, times, half a time, 1,290 days, 1,335 days? Also back, remember, in Daniel 8.14, we had 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then in Daniel 9.27, we had half a week. What's it all mean? How's it all work? relate together? God alone knows. God alone knows. And I think that's the point. The point is, 
that God knows the end. He knows the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' evil. He knows the end of the evil and the persecution that we will face. He knows the end of every evil oppressor and antichrist that will rise. He knows because he's put the expiration date on evil. So, Daniel, go on your way and trust me to take care of it. And in the meantime, don't fret yourself. Don't fret yourself about dates and times. Go your way, no matter how long it ends up being, even if it ends up being longer than you thought. You thought it was going to be 1,290 days, but it ended up being 1,335 days. An extra 45 days. No matter if it ends up being longer, hang on. And be faithful to the end. Church, the message to Daniel is the message to us. It is the message that no matter how long it is till Christ's return, no matter how long you have to face persecution, no matter how long until evil is completely destroyed, until all that's been prophesied is fulfilled, go your way, persevere, be faithful unto the end. Church, we know that there will be a resurrection. We know that there is reward for the faithful. We know that evil's days are numbered. We know that nations rage, kingdoms rise, and they fall. So trust in our God, who is the Ancient of Days. And go on your way, faithfully following Him all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, make us faithful. Make us faithful to follow all the way to the end. Though kingdoms rage, though evil comes, though we face trial and persecution and uncertainty, it is not uncertain to you, for you are the ancient of days. So, Father, keep us faithful, faithful all the way to the end. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.